0: It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now.
1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jennifer Yeremeyeva. And today I have a real treat uh, because we will be discussing a topic that's one of my great passions, and that is Russian culinary history. I am a Russian historian by profession, But I'm also a food writer and living in Russia for 20 years turned me into a passionate student of this discipline. But it's a frustrating one because there's comparatively little scholarship on Russian food today. But my guests today have edited a collection of essays about food and gender in late Soviet society, which I think goes a long way to addressing this lack of real research and analysis. I am so excited to talk to them about it. The book is Seasoned Socialism, Gender and Food in Late Soviet Everyday Life, and I am so delighted that it brings two of the book's editors and contributors to the show today. Angela Brintlinger and Anastasia Laktikova. Ladies, welcome. Hello. Hello. Great to be here. I can tell uh, our listeners that both Anastasia and Angela are incredibly busy academics. We spent about a month trying to find a suitable time uh, to do this interview, uh, sometime when each of us was was free to do it. It was quite a challenge, but I'm delighted we found the time. Um, before we begin to talk about the book, could I ask each of you to tell us a little bit about your academic background and how you became interested in culinary history? Angela, perhaps we could start with you.
0: Sure. Uh, Jennifer, I'm a faculty member in the Department of Slavic and East European Languages and Cultures at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, as well as director of the Center for Slavic and East European Studies there. And I've been teaching Russian literature and culture for just over a quarter century. Uh, People often ask me, you're a professor of Russian. Are you Russian? And the answer is no. I'm just a regular American uh, who got fascinated with Russian language and culture back in high school, actually. In fact... That might be where my love of Russian, uh, my love of cuisine comes from. Um, when I was uh, in my high school Russian club, we actually did some Russian cooking along with a little Bela playing and whatnot. Um, so it dates way, way back for me. Um, but I learned to cook like a Russian, uh, I would say, in a Soviet dorm room uh, during my first uh, semester abroad in Leningrad. My roommates taught me to love uh, soups and salads. Um, And uh, for Russian cuisine, I think we'll talk about it later, but uh, soup is really the main thing. Um, And on holidays, particularly International Women's Day, uh, Russian women compete with each other to serve the most beautiful and delicious composed salads. Um, I just recently was looking through my old pictures uh, from International Women's Day in uh, 1987, featuring the fantastic salads that we made to celebrate that day. You know, I just love to, uh, I take every opportunity I can to ask my Russian friends, my men and women friends about their cooking techniques. Uh, And and that's, I guess, you know, part of where this this comes from is my love of cooking at home as well as my academic interests.
2: Well, um, I came to the United States to go to graduate school and study English. Um, I'm from Eastern Ukraine and um, I lived all my childhood up to after college um, there And um, um, I did finish a degree in uh, English and comparative literature uh, and have taught English composition and also some Russian. And um, I came to food because my life is constantly um, revolves around food. I'm not just interested in culinary history. I'm obsessed with food just like my mother is, Uh, just like many women who grew up and lived in the Soviet period. I was writing my dissertation on Vladimir Nabokov, actually while feeding my my family and uh, raising two babies and uh, telling my husband stories from my childhood family um, time and um, um, all of which somehow ended up being stories about food adventures and about relationship with foods um. And uh, my husband kept saying, uh, that would make a good essay, you should write that one up. And I didn't believe him at first, um, because I thought, who would care about my little story, about my little family, and um, about this specific recipe? But then I started thinking about it slowly, and... Um, all stories that came out were autobiographical accounts, and I wanted to share them with broader audience. Um, uh, so I had to make them academically acceptable. So I turned to the culinary studies and educated myself in the field.
1: And 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 how did the idea to do this particular book come about? Um, it's, it seems like it's a very collaborative. Uh, I don't want to say joint venture, but a a collaborative Mm -hmm. venture um, in academia. How did you guys come up with the idea?
0: Well, you know, we actually share um, other research interests as well. We both write about autobiography and about biography. And so we were together uh, actually in a conference hotel room. Um, talking about various uh, projects that we were doing, and Anastasia said to me, "Hey, you know, I need another co-editor for this project, this idea that I have." And I said, "Hey, I'm not chopped liver. What about me?" So, so, so we we just you know, and then we 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 never did do a conference. Uh, we just. Uh, we put out a call for papers and we collected people that we knew would have interesting things to say. And we thought about, you know, how we wanted it to be shaped and what was missing and sought out people who could fill those, those niches, those, those lacuna. And, uh, I, I think it came out beautifully.
1: Anastasia, your book covers uh, the period of the thaw in Russia, that's 1964 to 1982, but many of these essays reference traditions from earlier periods as well as food. For our listeners who may not be as familiar with Russian culinary history, could you briefly outline it in very broad strokes? Um, what happened to Russian cuisine before 1964 and how it changed through the histories?
2: Well, um, uh, the changes to Russian cuisine uh, were introduced by the changes uh, in the country and in the government. Um, also, the World War One and World War Two had a huge impact um, on just basic. Uh, availability of foodstuffs. And um, uh, for the most period uh, between the wars and even after World War II, uh, Soviet citizens were quite hungry, uh, if not starving, um, and I mean regular people. Um, and um, I think the period that we are trying to cover actually is, um, kind of documents uh, more or less normal life uh soviet life that um uh, that um for example i had as a child um and uh, so a good time and um um before uh, early 60s, um, Khrushchev was still struggling to um, feed the country, just basically feed the people. So uh, the relationship with the food uh, was really basic, I think. Wouldn't you say, Angela? Yeah. Um, Well, one of of the things I think that
0: people, especially in the United States, who are interested in Russian cuisine, they focus on kind of the elite cuisine, which is often, you know, what the the dishes that came in from France or from French uh, chefs who came to Russia in the 18th or the 19th century. These things developed um, and uh, it's not what the regular people ate. So one of the things that I think is the most is so interesting about the period that we're looking at is that it's kind of the first time that regular people began to have a more comfortable level of, of everyday dining so that they're combining the traditions that they had from their peasant grandparents, um, and from sort of older Russian uh, times with some other foreign influences, influences based on the expansion of Russia into the Soviet union and the, the, uh, adoption really of cuisines from you know the other republics uh which are no longer part of Russia but which uh, in the, this particular period uh, had a had a big influence i think on certainly big city uh eating would you say nastya
2: mm, yes um also official policy about food ha- had a huge impact on how people uh, related and thought about foods and um a, a huge part of the book is uh, dedicated to the official line on what how people should eat it's about nutrition for example not about uh, uh, pleasure um it's about correct way of eating um It's about health uh, more than anything else. And uh, um, I think before the period that we are looking at, um, this kind of uh, official uh, discourse on cuisine um, is more or less unrelated to real life, but then it becomes, I think, a little bit more related because people can actually Find more food uh, to work with, <laughs> and um... <laughs>
1: because because there was um, right after the revolution this um, extraordinary sea change, as, as I always see it, that that suddenly we want to take women like out of the kitchen um, and put food into the workplace. That that where you work is where you eat. Is that is that correct? <laughs>
0: It is, but it, it remained in many ways an ideology. You know, the practical, Some in some places it did happen. Uh, there were these factory kitchens, there were these cafeterias, uh, there were, uh, there was a big, uh, call it even a, a system uh, developed of uh, bakeries and other kinds of prepared foods that you could go and pick up. And that certainly lasted through the Soviet period, through the entire Soviet period, but um, and there was a there was a de-emphasis on the kitchen. So with uh, communal housing, in particular communal apartments, there were it wasn't that convenient to cook at home. It was easier to pick something up or to try to eat in a cafeteria somewhere than it was to try to cook in a kitchen that had eight other uh, eight other people uh, preparing food for their families. Uh, at the same time. A lot of it was exactly. just rhetoric and ideology because people just didn't have the money uh, to do what needed to be done, and and the infrastructure was was supposed to be built and wasn't always uh, didn't always make it into reality.
1: So we see food touching economic history social history as well as culinary history and yet this topic is so undermined um, not undermined in the sense of of sabotage but I just don't see that there's a lot of scholarship on it and i I wonder if you can sort of unpack why that may be
0: you know um oh. In the United States, uh, in the last, call it 30 years, there's been a little bit of scholarship. And we deliberately asked Dara Goldstein to write the preface to Seasoned Socialism because she's one of the pioneers of Russian food studies in the United States. And she talks about the early years of food studies a little bit in that preface. Um, Dara also founded the American journal Gastronomica, which publishes articles about food, including Russian cuisine. And we made sure to get the current Gastronomica editor, Melissa Caldwell, to write an essay for us as well. Uh, This is one of the world's experts on dacha culture and an anthropologist. So she enhanced both our content and uh, really enriched our disciplinary uh, diversity. Uh, in the book, but it seems to me that culinary history generally has had to overcome the stigma about being about home, being about women and domesticity. You know, anthropologists have been more likely than other scholars to pursue these studies, but everyone else really stayed away for many years. Um, and you know, so in that sense, we 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 really feel that our book fills this niche. Um, and at the same time, I would say that both in Russia and in the West, more and more scholars are interested in these questions. Um, For example, our third co-editor, Irina Glushenko, who lives in Moscow, uh, wrote a book about the Soviet food giant Anastas Nikayan, uh, who was people's commissar for the food processing industry, uh, particularly in the 1930s. And he led the project to publish the famous Soviet book of tasty and healthy food. Um, Anyone who knows Russian can find Irina as a talking head on documentaries that circulate on YouTube. She's a terrific speaker, and she's good at popularizing the scholarly approaches to the history of cuisine. Um so that's you know definitely there are a couple of of studies both in Russia uh and in the United States and in other places uh over the last 20 or 30 years but it's the gender thing in some way that, that is. kept that it's kept food also, down I would uh, say. yes
2: uh, i would like to add um i think it's also uh, food studies uh, don't fit very well with a feminist um uh, agenda, uh, because because it looks at a woman who is a homemaker and who is engaged with foods very intensely. So um, it's not something that uh, Western feminism uh, uh, appreciates, <laughs> or even or even is interested in, or is interested in um, studying um, objectively. Um, it it, uh, it it's not um, a major. Uh, yeah, a major point of interest.
0: Um. Oh, and we can even, just go, going back to Anastasia's comment about her husband, um, you know, she her husband saw that it was interesting and she herself, as somebody who was educated, being educated in the academy, felt that, oh, no, no, that's private, that's public, that's personal, that's not scholarship. But in fact, uh, once we turn our scholarly eye on these issues, and if we can get past some of the discomfort of, oh, it's just women doing their thing, um, feeding their families, we see all sorts of interesting uh, aspects to be looked at.
1: Absolutely. And one of, one of the things that comes through almost well, I I think all of the essays really, is the way that Soviet citizens were forced to, as you say, navigate the food world where some sort of scarcity um, does exist in many different kinds of forms. And in your your introduction, I loved this phrase, you asked us to imagine a society where food is managed by officialdom, like a controlled substance, (laughs) and everyone is addicted to it, because of course everyone is addicted to food. Uh, and the issue um, at the heart of, of so many, this this issue is right there at, in many of these essays, as are the choices that people uh, use, have to make to navigate the world. Anastasia, could you expand on that a little bit? Because I think it's such an interesting aspect of the collection of essays.
2: Right. Um, so... In every, I think, oppressive system, um, people uh, figure out the ways to go around the uh, barriers. And um, uh, one of the barriers related to food in the Soviet uh, uh, everyday life and in the infrastructure of the society was uh, the control over... uh, um, goods foods and services that were uh, we had a planned economy um that was planned by someone at the top and then it was handed down to the local administration and uh, local enterprises and local food producing uh, entities uh, call houses, and uh, then it was gathered in central centrally and redistributed. And um, the way it was redistributed uh, didn't really – it wasn't a fair way. Uh, It was – interests of the state first uh, so enterprises uh, uh, that were extremely important for um, industrial development of the state uh, were f- um, a fed first they had better food they had better cafeterias they had more uh, stuff sent their way and um, uh, In the stores, generally, the same kind of distribution occurred from the center out. And so people who were the closest to the points of distribution and control of the food uh, found themselves to be the most powerful ones in the society. So uh, if uh, in a market economy, um, social classes are created uh, by... um, as Bourdieu explained to us very well, um, are created by the sense of taste and the choice of what we eat in the uh, Soviet non-market economy. Uh, Social classes were created by the proximity to the center of uh, all good things. Uh, So um, Mm -hmm. uh, education didn't play as much role as how much uh, material... um, material things and food you controlled or had access to. So uh, obviously people uh, used um, this power to give or not to give, to share or not to share uh, foods and services and uh, goods. And um, uh, everybody else had to somehow figure out how to find access to these people who control things to uh, also get something. Because very little actually trickled down to an ordinary person who had no connections or no access uh, to the points of distribution.
1: I think that that is um the proximity and how to uh, get get food is something that comes through in humorous ways in uh Soviet film. A couple of the essays touch on this, uh how food is portrayed in Soviet cinema. Angela, can you uh, unpack that for us a little bit?
0: Well, you know, um, it is a great uh, way to access uh, food um, and so visual, obviously. So, uh, you know, early Soviet cinema is well known for its innovative techniques and its pathbreaking directors. Uh, and I myself have used the famous Eisenstein men and maggots scene from Battleship with to teach you about food history. Anybody who hasn't seen that scene, just, you know, uh, put it into YouTube and check it out. It's quite quite vivid. Um, but the heyday of Sylvia film was really in the 1970s and 80s. They were great films and great actors and a lot of melodrama, which fits well with our themes. Uh, gender relations were really important in the Brezhnev era, and this, the various roles of women and men in society were shifting. So in two of the essays in the book by Adrian Jacobs and Edie Glushenko. um they really they look at these, a number of these films, uh, which treat precisely this question. If women, like men, uh, built careers and spent a lot of time in the workplace, then who was taking care of the children and who was making the dinner? Uh, one good example Um, discussed in in, in both of the chapters is the Oscar-winning 1979 film, Moscow Does Not Believe in Tears. It's, again, one of the better-known Russian films from this era. Uh, And in that film, three types of women are shown. The more traditional, shy, and motherly type who lands a husband and expends a lot of energy raising and preserving food at her family dacha to feed her growing family. Uh, She has a couple of boys, I think. Three, actually. If I remember correctly. three. Um, yeah. <laughs> three, oh my gosh, Which for the yeah. time, I, yeah. I mean Imagine. two boys, especially in terms of feeding them, you know what a nightmare anyway, so the second the second uh, woman who's in the film is the gold digger who tries to use her looks to land a wealthy mate, and she ends up old and sad and divorced from her alcoholic husband, who somehow still comes by to to beg for money. Um, And the third character, the successful character, is the executive uh, single mother who has to find a man in the end to show her around the kitchen and complete her family. And that's the the ideological message. That suitor, Gosha, plays against type in a way. In Russian culture, as in many countries, men traditionally cook outdoors. Uh, In Russia, they are in charge of the shushlik, just as in the U.S. Men cook meat at the backyard barbecue. But Gosha excels not just at shushlik, but also at soup and he's not ashamed to put on an apron. So those those uh, it's, it's humorous, uh, but it's also um, really in some ways uh, an, an ideal for a woman who wants to be successful, who wants to work hard and have the kid and also end up with the man uh, in the kitchen. So this film and others, like my favorite is A Train Station for Two uh, from approximately the same time period. Uh, they'd show how women in this era that interests us, the era of what we're calling seasoned socialism, are trying to have it all, but without help from men, they cannot juggle their aging parents, their jobs, their children, and their social lives. It sounds actually uh, oddly (laughs) like my own. uh, um, The literature in the Brezhnev period also began to treat this topic. Uh, uh, Another of our contributors, uh, Ben Sutcliffe, uh, has called this the, the, the literature... Uh, of the period, especially written by women, the prose of life, right? Uh, Where we're really thinking about how do you get things done? How do you raise the children? What do you do with the mother who somehow lives in your room and yet you have your, your, your boyfriend over and now what do you do? So this is part of why we chose these particular parameters for the book is that there's so much uh, both comedy and drama and tragedy uh, in the scenes that are portrayed. All around food, right all around food absolutely all around food,
1: and I wonder um if we could talk a little bit about how people learn to cook um how you know how does Gosha know how to how to make uh make the wonderful soup that he does anastasia, you um cover this in in one essay, and um I wonder if i always to, to me, I'm always struck by the fact that there are comparatively few cookbooks, uh, you know, real classic ones. We've mentioned the book of Tasty and Healthy Food. Um, that's maybe one of five um, seminal cookbooks in Russian. Uh, can you tell us about the, the issue of cookbooks? Because there are a lot more cookbooks, but we just don't know about them. And I wonder if you can tell listeners why.
2: Well, um Actually, in the Soviet period, uh, there were maybe more, but you couldn't buy them. Uh, You couldn't even purchase uh, the cook of healthy and tasty food uh, outside of the capitals, I think, because I've heard about it, for example, but I've never seen it until my uh, brother married uh, a Moscovite, and her mother had one. Um, uh, We had a book called Culinaria which was uh, created for professional cooks. Um, And it had very bright pictures with um, professionally uh, created cakes and uh, measurements for a couple of hundred people uh, to cook one of the recipes. So I looked at it um, as an illustrated, I don't know, illustrated Bible, you know, in... uh, um, the language that i didn't read and uh it was fun um but it wasn't a source of information um there were a couple more a couple more that people used um, very selectively because um, the purpose of creating these cookbooks wasn't to provide really information and help women to cook it was a different kind of a project um it was um Uh, a representative project. Uh, This is what our Soviet cuisine is like. It's rich, uh, it's uh, healthy, this is how you should eat. Nobody cared if you could actually find ingredients for the uh, recipes that were representative. Um, And um, uh, this was the case in eastern Ukraine um, and uh, in uh, some other uh, provincial Places. But for example, uh, in Estonia, where I've spent um, a couple of summers, uh, there was a local publisher who published uh, very reasonably composed cookbooks in Estonian. Uh, you you could find small brochures on uh, Estonian soups, Estonian desserts, Estonian meat dishes, uh, sausages, fish. So they were available, very inexpensive, and uh, also uh, realistic. Um, extremely. I find them in every family that I interview for my research. Uh, yes. And also, there was a set of... Um, a very pretty postcards um, dedicated to national cuisines, um, uh, both of Soviet realm and also of broader socialist realm. Um, there was a very bright picture on the front and the recipe and the process of how to make the dish in the back. And those, I think they were available in the capitals as well. And some women used, used them sometimes to diversify their... Uh, But, but,
1: um, you know, most of the uh, cooks who've gone from the former Soviet Union to the West and and have published successful cookbooks today, I'm thinking of Olya Hercules, Alisa Timoshenko, they seem to have a rather um, waterlogged book that their grandmother created um, with the home recipes. And do do you find that this is a common thing in, in your research?
2: Yes, so uh, <laughs> um, notebook with recipes is not a Soviet invention. It's uh, a phenomenon of uh, Western, of the Western culture. And uh, I've discovered um, early 17th century notebooks with recipes um, from Germany and Ireland and England, um, and they look just like Soviet ones, <laughs> just, just a little older. Uh, yes and uh, so so as an as an object that uh, transferred knowledge um that belonged to a woman who had a family and was running a household it's a very common uh, vehicle for passing uh, down the knowledge of for learning to cook or managing uh, the household or even being a woman mm-hmm. um, um yes and um it's very significant when it came back. So this kind of an object um, was uh, available and popular uh, before the revolution. And um, uh, we there is an American cookbook uh, that has been written um, using these pre-revolutionary um, uh, notebooks with recipes. Lynn Besson is the author. Yes, yes. Uh, right. So...
0: So she, yeah, i love that book i always cook from that that's book. a great book.
2: right right <laughs> but, but for example something like that wasn't available to soviet citizens and um women started writing it, it was a fad uh, that came about uh mid-60s mid um where women started writing down these recipes again in the notebooks um and um Um, the idea of a woman as a homemaker became popular once again around that time. Um, I think partially because the idea of a woman worker who ate in the cafeteria uh, wasn't appealing anymore or wasn't even necessary maybe anymore because um, uh, maybe for maybe... Because because uh, women were not um, such an important labor force in the industry anymore, so these city women uh, were allowed or reinvented uh, the ideal of a uh, um, housewife and homemaker, even though they had full-time jobs and uh, uh, you know high education and family and uh, uh, careers. Um,
1: and, and that's interesting that the women undergo such a such a social change throughout the last century. That the, the beginning, they're these you know bold factory workers, and by the end, um, you know, their International Women's Day is all about flowers and chocolates. It's not about um, feminism and, and equality. Um, Angela, uh, there are many essays uh, touch on on women's roles with food, but you do also look at men's roles. Um, they do engage with food, but in very particular ways. And I um, would ask you maybe to talk a little bit about men and
0: food. Yeah, you can't have gender if you don't have both men and women. <laughs> so as I mentioned before, in representations of food preparation, men generally cook outdoors. Um, in her essay, our uh, one of our Ukrainian contributors, Alena Styashkina, also writes about performing masculinity, specifically pointing to what she calls prestige foods, um, foods which require a certain status to access special sausages, some caviar, some preserved foods, um, you know, again, what, what Anastasia was talking about this distribution system. You know, women sometimes had the status to get these special food packages with the scarce goods, but men also could bring them home or to a party to enhance their social status as providers. Um, I could go back to again to um, Moscow doesn't believe in tears. There's that wonderful party scene where this one relatively uh, slightly older, maybe slightly. Not so attractive man shows up with his briefcase and starts pulling out canned goods to say, "See, look, I'm a really great provider. Uh, You should want to date me. You should want to marry me because I have access to to these kinds of, again, scarce goods. Um, We also talk in the book about how men bought certain foods at markets, uh, meat in particular, but also fish and greens and fruit, perhaps because they were bulkier and heavier to carry, maybe because you had to have a car sometimes to cart some of them around and men were more likely to drive in this period. Um, But also maybe because the space of the open air food market included male sellers, often from the southern reaches of the Soviet Union, Um, that gendered divide, stores are for women, markets are for men. The kitchener is for women, the outdoor grill is for men, is a stereotype, of course, and in life there are always exceptions. But Soviet families, Soviet men and women, often did perform these traditional roles, and the expectations for their behavior um, were gendered. I would also go back to um, uh, the question of demographics as one of the reasons. In post-World War II Soviet Russia men were scarce and their value increased. So women were ready to serve them. When no man was around, they grew and preserved and served food to their children and their parents and each other. Um, again, you know, that I, I, I really want to highlight what Anastasia was just talking about. These, um, uh, the manuscript, personal manuscript cookbooks, which are the subject of her research. We have beautiful illustrations in the book of those actual objects. Um, and, uh, they represented this network. She talks uh, in her in her essay about the network that women created uh, to share those recipes, sharing them at work and and um, putting the names of their friends and their coworkers on the recipes in their own notebooks. So let's try the one that so and so made and brought to the lunch. Men weren't weren't bringing food to work, um, but men uh, are also really interesting um, when we think about how did they provide. Uh, prepare, consume. In what situations were they also involved with food?
1: And I and I loved the way you talked about it as a performative, um, the way the way men cook because it's often at the dacha. There's a large fire. It's very dramatic. Um, Anastasia, take us to the dacha because that's such a big part of um, the issue of food. Is is for those who do have a dacha, um, talk to us about what it is and how what role it plays uh, in this era.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I grew up uh, in or uh, at the dacha. Um, yes, um, and I re- my first memories come from dacha. Uh, it was purchased by my grandmother for a huge amount of money as a plot of clay, and uh, by the by my time, um, it was uh, a knee deep uh, dirt, uh, dark earth uh, that was packed with plants in four tiers there were huge fruit trees Uh, then there were smaller fruit trees then there were bushes under the trees and uh, then there were flowers under the bushes and everything literally everything that could grow in the climate of eastern ukraine grew there and this was our way of uh, having plenty um that that impacted our lifestyle hugely and our quality of life Um, because people who didn't have access to self-grown foods, they depended on uh, what was available in the stores and at the markets and um, they could afford or access very little while we had no restraint in how much we could eat for example of uh, fruits that were very inaccessible and also vegetables. And um dacha is originally is a gift from the emperor uh, to a Russian noble. Dacha Davat uh, is a term uh, for something being given, a present. Um, and um, um, this tradition comes from um, the capitals actually where nobles lived and where they had duches and cultivated them as a place of rest. And um, until now, we have, in the colder climates, obviously, of St. Peter, Petersburg and Moscow, as well as in uh, Baltic Republics, where it's also very cold, dacha's are places of um, um, uh, where you take your vacation, where you rest, but also where you forage in the forests. So you pick up berries and mushrooms and herbs in the natural environment uh, that is around you uh, in abundance. Uh, You fish, um, you basically reconnect with nature, and you do grow some vegetables, but your growing period is extremely short. Uh, so it's a place of rest. In uh, Ukraine, Dacia is a place of heavy everyday labor from the beginning from the beginning of the season to the end of it. Uh, it has huge rewards and a certain freedom from the limitations that the uh, economy uh, puts on you in the Soviet period. But it's also a lot of work.
1: It's a ton of work. I mean, I, yeah. I know, I have... Russian friends who go for a weekend at the dacha and come back to work as if it's a rest cure, um, because it's just they've spent so much time at the weekend working in the garden. But it seems to me that most Russians really uh, see the value in growing something on one's own um, and, and using the plants to augment nutrition. Um, there's an extreme example of this in, in your book, um, talking about women in labor camps, um, as late as the 1980s. I recently interviewed Mark Galliotti about his book on organized crime, which is kind of like an opposite of your book, um, <laughs> uh, because he talks about the very, um, violent relationships people have in the labor camps. He's talking about men. Um, But you give us an example of a group of women who work together to cultivate plants under the most um, difficult circumstances and really not only survive, but thrive in a way because of it. Um, Angela, can you walk us through that very interesting essay? Um, It's by... Yeah,
0: absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So Ona Renner-Fahey um, was exploring uh, the memoir of poet Irina Ratushinskaya in her essay. And one of my favorite terms that emerges in our book is in Ona's essay. It's, it's the ethic of care. Um, she draws on the work of gender scholars Susan Stahl and Randy Stoker and describes this community of women in a labor camp. Um, again, where Radzinska was imprisoned, uh, instead of competing with each other for the potatoes at the bottom of the soup cauldron or for the last piece of bread in the canteen, those are the things that we see in, say, a Solzhenitsyn story, right? Or, or lots of stories by men uh, about life in labor camps. These women um, in this particular camp identified each other's specific skills and needs and really ministered to each other. So they they themselves. They thought about creating community and helping each other rather than competing. And they grew wild plants and herbs uh, surreptitiously in the prison yard. Um, They treated different kinds of illnesses they gathered. Each of them had a kind of a specialty, the way that that Ona describes uh, this memoir. Uh, Irina Ratushinskaya talks about the one with the medical knowledge and the one with um, more, uh, you know, uh, herbalist sort of, um, or nutritionist, different kinds of, of, um, of specialties. And that's what's, you know, um, again, when we think about gender in, in literature, we do see, um, and in memoir, we do see some, uh, creation of community, uh, when we're talking about men, but we see it more often with women, um, particularly in this, in this memoir. It's a lovely essay. It was,
2: a,
1: it was really beautiful and very touching.
2: I, I um, would like to add, um, Yeah. If if possible. Um, Always possible. (laughs) (laughs) These women uh, who had these specialties, it wasn't uh, they were not their professional specialties. Those were the knowledge that they acquired uh, by being actually engaged with food and with plants outside of their professions. I don't think one of them was an actual doctor or a professional herbalist, right? So, yeah, they were able to survive and have a better quality of life in the camp because they were actually interested about the plants uh, routinely, you know. Uh, Men don't Mm -hmm. don't do that uh, that much. No, they don't. Right. And
0: again, I think, you know, so just going back to the dacha question as well, you know, one of the things that I think we see now in dacha communities, um, and I saw this summer, this summer I went to visit some friends out at a dacha community, which really was, we see the merging of kind of peasant life with dacha traditions. Mm-hmm. So that um, some of these now, especially with, with cars now, or other kinds of, uh, you know, train transportation, people can really get out into the countryside really far away from the capitals or far away from their regular homes and apartments. And they, um, the, the retired women will live out there year round when they can. Um, but people come out and they have this combination of native knowledge, knowledge that's gained from their parents and grandparents, Um, And new technologies, so not just gardens, but hothouses with all kinds of designs, plastic coverings, um, hoops, hoop uh, gardens. Some of them are actually large enough to walk into with rows and rows of planted spring onions and tomatoes and peppers and herbs uh, on either side of like a central walkway. So when we think about, you know, these women in the prison camp, one of the things in the prison, one of the things that, that Ona describes is how they had to, surreptitiously, they had to know how to both grow these plants and also kind of hide them. Mm. And that knowledge of, of which plants go with which and how to get the best yield comes from their dacha experience and their country experience.
1: And of course, the most important vegetable of all is the cabbage, isn't it? <laughs> and Angela, you... I think so. You... For me, you took the cabbage to a whole new level in this, in this collection of essays. Um, I, I thought I knew my cabbage lore, but oh, no. Um Tell tell us about the cabbage.
0: So thank you for that. Yeah, I wanted, I, I did write, i that's how I got, I came to the project really, is I was already, I think, obsessed about cabbage. Um, I wanted in my essay to posit an alternative to the anthropologist Nancy Reese's idea of pot- potato ontology, which I also love. In brief, Nancy uh, explored in, her, in an essay uh, a couple of years ago, early post-Soviet Russia, and she came to the conclusion that everyone remained comfy as long as they still had potatoes. Even if they were only eating potatoes, they felt like they wouldn't starve. Um, And again, when we think about that early post-Soviet period, late late Soviet and early post-Soviet period, there really was, um, you know, there were ration cards, people were really worried. Uh, They didn't even feel like they could take advantage of the berries out at their uh, country houses because they didn't have access to sugar. So there was this real fear Um, again, of famine. But so uh, William Pachlyopkin, who's one of the people I write about, the Soviet food historian, identifies cabbage as a foreign food. Um, But it it goes way back for the Russians. It's been a staple in Russia for much longer than potatoes. Um, You know, when I teach, especially, I love to go back to the Russian proverbs, which are these little time capsules of cultural knowledge. Uh, And uh, the proverb I use in my title, shidakasha, pishinasha, um, is a favorite of Russian teachers because of the alternating consonants sh and sh, which are so hard for Americans to, to uh, express. Um, but it also uh, gives gives voice to that quintessential peasant food. Um, you know, Russian real Russian food is fairly bland. It had to be easy to grow and make and store in a climate with a relatively brief hot season. Um, and uh, and cabbage is that you know central again quintessential food um so both of these in the in the proverb she and kasha she is cabbage soup um, and kasha is porridge both of them are cheap and easy to make and and what was important in the old days right they could be made overnight in the russian stove and they could also really be stretched for a crowd when we talk about she we talk about um you know, spring she, which was basically just uh, greens that you find in the forest and put in water, waiting uh, for a period when you'll have a, a little bit more food. The, the, looking at the the Russian peasant diet uh, on a in the agricultural year and agricultural cycle is fascinating. Both of these foods in the proverbs, she and kasha, they warm the body from the inside, which during the Russian winter uh, is really important. Uh, What what fascinated me about the topic was that the authors I found um, had this, again, this gender split. For women, uh, cabbage seems to have a folkloric quality. It's a food prepared and shared in almost miraculous ways. Uh, And the male food historians that I analyzed find it to be an issue of patriotism, you know, that cabbage is cheap, plentiful, and honorable. So I get cheap and plentiful, but why apply, you know, personal qualities to a food, there's something about food that causes writers to kind of bristle about foreign influence to insist that everything imported has been transformed and Russified and made better that process. So that's what I try to get at. I was episode.
1: reminded when I read that of, um, you know, in, in 2014 this horrible um, d- uh, Malaysian Airlines um, oh, exploit yes. yeah, dreadful. And in response, rather inexplicably, uh, Putin imposes sanctions on all Western foods, um, practically, like dairy and, and chocolates and oils and um, almost everything that's good from the EU um, is suddenly overnight banned. And uh Sergei Ivanov, who's particularly unpleasant um, member of, of the government, uh, although I think he's retired now, said very pointedly, he said, you know, the Russian people are delighted to live on cabbage and buckwheat kasha, you know, if Crimea is at stake. So and it gets to that idea of the honorable, like, you know, our honor is at stake. And so we will make this sacrifice.
2: Very unpleasant. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure he personally didn't subsist on shit. I should you know? think so, no. <laughs> no, before we um,
1: before we finish up, I do want to uh, address one more food group. I think of it as a food group in Russia, which is alcohol, um, <laughs> which is not a food, but it is uh, important um, in in the in the annals of Russian cuisine and you do touch on
0: it. Can you, um, Angela, can you take us through the issue of alcohol at this time? Well, you know, we would need a whole nother volume to talk about the connections between food and alcohol. Um, And we knew that our our volume wouldn't be complete without some insight into the topic. So we sought out uh, Lydia Livkovich, who is our author. She's writing a dissertation on the representation of alcohol and drug dependency in Russian literature. Uh, And in her essay, she details both the official discourse of alcoholism and drunkenness, which began in the 1950s, and then she finds specific examples of how drunks are portrayed in a novella by the writer, Vil Lipatov, who, by the way, himself had a very well-known alcohol problem. Um, I think it's not a coincidence that the one essay that delves into alcohol discourse is mostly about men. Uh, in this era, particularly, any hint of women's alcoholism was taboo, and certainly women's drinking was not portrayed in mainstream films or fiction. It's a really rich topic uh, for a future project, uh, and the gendered aspect is also fascinating. I love I love thinking about about uh alcohol representation of alcohol in literature but uh, but we just have the the one essay really right right
1: well I, I think I think a second book is definitely on the cards there 's so there's <laughs> much more um, Anastasia, you are in the former Soviet Union right now, um, and I wondered if you might talk to us a little bit about I see a, a real resurgence of the idea of traditional Russian cuisine in the past. Fifteen years. Um, I think that people have become really passionate about um, pre-revolutionary recipes and methods of cooking. Um, you know, the sanctions that I mentioned earlier have led to everybody has become a cheese maker. Um,
2: are you seeing that where you are? <sighs> No, because no? I, am, okay. I am in EU, actually. I'm oh, in Est- okay. <laughs> I'm in Estonia, who is a member of European Union and also a member of NATO. So uh, no sanctions have affected this country. Right. Okay. Uh, however, uh, my brother has lived uh, with his family, lived in Moscow uh, for 10 years, um, and uh, he... Uh, Uh, left Moscow only a couple of years ago, and he actually uh, has lived through the sanctions. Um, And uh, the food scene that he described was uh, not a celebration of traditional Russian cuisine. Uh, It was um, uh, misery, where you go to a large uh, food <laughs> supermarket and uh, where you could find um, everything imported uh, from you know from potatoes imported from israel to apples that came from latin america um, you know both could be grown in russia but were not allowed to reach the consumer because it's um, Profitable for someone to import these basic things like right. apples and potatoes. Mm-hmm. You couldn't find certain things anymore in the stores, like uh, carrots. Uh, carrots would disappear from the stores, and or you would have rotten carrots through which people dug with their, their hands in like 21st century. Um, and mm-hmm. you would have only one kind of cheese that Russians produced, um, and it was horrible, just disgusting. So cheese mm-hmm. became a major item that you would gift someone. Uh, if you happen to go abroad uh, and, and uh, you know, you would bring cheese as a present uh, to, to, to your friends and family. Um, I connect the um, uh, perception that uh, traditional Russian things are more in fashion uh, to the um, encouragement uh, of uh, R- Russian patriotism in the country Uh, Mm. to looking uh, uh, inward as a nation rather than to the greater world, uh, to conservatives, political conservatism, and also um, um, probably um, uh, censure of uh, everything progressive and avant-garde in culture. And I can see the same development uh, in music where the Mm. most popular groups – other groups that play the same tunes they played 20 years ago, and the folksy, pseudo-folksy tunes that are exactly the same and, and uninteresting, and there's nothing new or fresh about them. It's really sad. It is sad, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Well, I think that is all true, but, but it's, um, you know, and, and I have to say that the supermarket situation is crazy right now in Russia. Um, the supermarkets are huge. They have everything from, you know, automobile, automobile tires to bicycles. Um, I was in Vyborg uh, at the grocery store and I we were choosing between fresh fish, which, as we all know, When you see fresh fish, it could have been previously frozen. So we chose some packaged fish that had been frozen on, you know, it said on the packaging that it was frozen on the ship. Uh, so you know, really delicious foods, and some of my friends, certainly in Saint Petersburg, you know, they use these big these big supermarkets, uh, but they also have relationships with people at markets and at small shops, and we had some delicious fresh cheese. So even though I've I've heard, you know, cheese is one of the things that I'm obsessed with. I'm actually a lacto-ovo vegetarian. Uh, which is problematic in terms of loving Russian food, um, but some of the uh, some of the, the the small batch cheeses that I have had, I've heard different things. I'm always asking people, "What do you know? What have you What have you tried?" And uh, and you have to know the right people. Just as you know, if you have long standing relationships with people at the market, they save you their best dill, and they know that you want uh, you know radishes and so on and so forth, and they'll pull it out from underneath uh, the cou- the countertop. So the, there are good cheesemakers, um, just not everywhere. As as always, Russia is still a huge country. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Well, I could I could talk about this subject all day with you two. Um, there's obviously so much we let, we left unsaid, um, but this is a really important book, um, not only for culinary historians and Russian historians, but I think also social historians as well. Um, It goes beyond uh, food, uh, it seems to me, and offers a real window into the mindset of of Russians during the thaw, but also through the ages. Um, And not only about food, I think it also taps into ideas towards society, gender equality, uh, and the role of the state to the individual and, and so many others. I really want to congratulate you both on this amazing compendium of, of essays and all the contributors. Uh, it's a very important addition to uh, the the work that's being done on culinary history. Um, so thank you for for all the work. Before we go, I want to make sure that our listeners know where they can find both of you um, and what you're working on presently. Angela, you also um, took part in this excellent um, Russian Food in Exile, which I actually have three copies of that for some reason. Um, But can you tell listeners about that and also what you're currently working on and where people might find you online?
0: Yes, absolutely. So one of my favorite books uh for thirty years has been uh Weil and Guinness's Russian Cuisine in Exile. Uh Piotr Weil and Alexander Guinness emigrated from actually from Latvia, uh, from the Soviet Union in nineteen seventy-nine to New York, and they originally published a bunch of essays, very humorous, very short. Um uh poignant sometimes, uh, always with a little recipe uh tip. Uh they were published originally in emigrate Periodicals and then they came out as a book in nineteen eighty seven. So that's one of the things that I that that I talk about a little bit uh in my essay for this book, but at the same time I was teaching it. Uh and as Anastasia and I were working on on Season Socialism, uh it dawned on me that it was time to translate uh, and write commentaries and publish uh, an English version of that book, which I did with my former student, Tom Furek, uh, and our translation came out at the end of last year. Uh, we're doing readings from it. We're still having a fun time. We're teaching from it. Uh, I did a two-day masterclass in Russian last week at the U.S. Naval Academy drawing on violin Guinness and the other food studies work I've done. Um, and actually, Tom, I think, has been asked to um, to teach a version uh, of the Russian food course that I taught him uh, at Northwestern, where he's a graduate student, fantastic. Uh, so he's gonna he's gonna do that next year, I think. Most of the the scholarly projects I've pursued have emerged from these and you know my enthusiasms and my interests: biography, madness, war, and now cuisine. Anybody uh, who wants to find out more should look at my Ohio State Department website or contact me. Um, at the moment, my longer-term project goes back to my training as a literary scholar. I'm trying, I'm writing a monograph about what I call "big books," mm. Russian novels that matter that you can return to at different stages of life and find something new. So I'm fascinated not just with reading but with rereading. Oh, so that's, that's what great. I do. Anyway. I
1: hope I hope you'll come yeah. back and talk to us about it when when it's published.
0: Yeah, and um, you know I also continue to blog occasionally, sometimes about food and culture in Russia uh, at what I call the Matic Bookstar Cafe. Uh, we can find that at manicbookstorecafe.blogspot.com.
1: And are you on Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, Instagram?
0: I am on Facebook a little bit. Um, I uh, I am not on Twitter. Okay. I you know I, I can't tweet. I can listen to the birds, but I can't tweet. Myself. That's fine. That's
1: fine. Anastasia, what about you? What's next in 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 your projects? And where can listeners find you online? Do you tweet?
2: Nope. I don't. <laughs> I do I do uh, sometimes uh, publish um, tidbits on Facebook, uh, but my major work can be found on academia.edu. Under my name, mm. um, there are other essays uh, on various topics, including food studies. I am uh, trying to finish a monograph on manuscript cookbooks. Um, I mm. have been able to do some research in... Um, Western Ukraine and in uh, Estonia as a representative of Baltic states, uh, territories that um, were annexed to the Soviet Union later. So the dynamics and the traditions uh, are preserved in the families quite differently from uh, the um, initial Soviet space that was formed in the beginning of the 20th century. So I have this contrasting information to what I already have published about, and it's uh, very interesting. Um, So I am uh, finishing... uh, monograph uh, on manuscript cookbooks right now.
1: Can I invite you back to talk about that as well? Please. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> well, then we have our next interviews all lined up. That's perfect. Um, I want to thank both of my guests today. I've been speaking with Angela Breitlinger and Anastasia Ljaktikova um, about their new book, Seasoned Socialism, Gender and Food in Late Soviet Everyday Life, published by Indiana University Press and available wherever great books are sold. Uh, I am your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva, and I will be back in September with more discussions about fascinating books with their very erudite authors. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.